As we continue our time of worship, we will be hearing the proclamation of God's Word. Uh, But before I begin, Matt asked me to convey a little story that happened this week. And I'm uh, going to expand on a little bit from what he has heard. So, whoops. (laughs) So on, on, uh, on Mondays, I have a discipleship meeting with a guy. Uh, but we both got really busy, and so I wasn't able to meet with him on Monday. And so we moved it to Friday. And Fridays are pretty crazy. So we moved it to Friday just before I had office hours here at the church. And so I go, and we're going to meet up at Chick-fil-A. Because if you're going to do discipleship, you might as well do it with the Lord's chicken. Amen? Amen? So we were having us some Chick-fil-A. And so I got there, and I was walking in, and a homeless man walked up to me and asked me if I could provide him some food or some loose change. And this happens a lot down by the base. I don't know if you know. It's gotten worse over the years. I don't carry cash. I I, I just don't. And it's not because I don't want to give cash away. I just, I don't carry cash. I mean, what is that? Right? And so I didn't carry any cash with me. And I looked at the guy and I was about to say, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash. And I just... I felt this weight of the Holy Spirit tell me, buy him lunch. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy him lunch. And so I texted my friend who I was meeting, and I'm like, hey, Matt, we're going we're gonna to have a company just in ordering our food. And this guy looked horrible, and he smelled worse. And I'm like, I'm just going to buy him some lunch, and I'm going to move on. And so we're standing in line. And I just really felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me that He is an example of the Imago Dei. And He is made in the image of God. And that I need to treat Him with the same level of love and respect that I would treat anybody. And so I began to ask Him questions. Hey man, what's your name? And so when we ordered, I introduced him to the wait lady at the checkout. I said, hey, this is my friend Austin. I would like for you to take his order. I, I looked at him. I said, hey, man, you can have anything you want on the menu, just not everything on the menu because I'm not that rich. And he laughed. And so he got a sandwich and he got some ice cream and he got a soda. And I'm like, cool, I'm cool with that. And so then I ordered my food and I ordered Matt's food and we got done and we decided, so his was to go and ours was to stay. And I said, well, how, where would you like us to stand around? Would you like us to stay together? And the lady's like, yeah, it'd be great. That'd be helpful since it's the same marker. And so we go and we're like, well, let's go sit down, Austin. Do you mind just sitting down with Matt and I and we'll just have a, a conversation? And he's like, sure, while we're waiting for food. And this is the one time I was a little bit peeved that Chick-fil-A was so fast. I had barely gotten into the topic of having a conversation about who he was when Chick-fil-A is like, here's your food. And so I looked at Austin and said, hey man, I'm not going to hold you hostage. I said, but if you, if you would be okay with this, I want to not only provide for your physical need, I want to help illuminate a spiritual need in your life. And at Chick-fil-A, at this weird table with a bunch of people staring at us because we had this dude with us, I, I shared the gospel. And I, we had this 20 to 25 minute conversation, way longer than I anticipated. But I just felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me that this person was made in the image of God. And his love that he poured out on the cross is the same love for me that he has for Austin. 
And I'm not telling you this to brag, because I'm about to show you why I'm not bragging in a second, because this day gets much worse. And so I get with this conversation, and I feel a little bit of joy. Like, I've done my Father's bidding. I have been faithful to share the gospel. Fast forward the day. There's another person that I know a little closer who is, dude, he's got my goat. If you ever want to see the devil come out of me, you put me in the same room with this person and it'll come. And I'm not saying that because I'm proud of it. I'm saying that because I'm ashamed. That the same heart and compassion that I have for a man named Austin who's lost and dying and going to hell apart from the saving work of Christ, is not the same love and compassion I have for this other guy. It's disdain, it's frustration, it's anger, it's it's this uncontrollable rage. And I felt such deep conviction when Matt's like, hey, I need you to tell this story on Sunday. I felt such conviction that I have both. And you have both. We have those people in our lives that, oh yeah, yeah, no, this is easy. I can respond to the Holy Spirit. I can show them love. I can show them compassion. I can show them mercy. But then we also have those other people who just drive us crazy. And I have been in turmoil since Friday, repenting of my own disdain for this person because I lashed out out of anger at this person. Man's eyes would say they deserved it, but Christ says, no, they don't. Man's eyes would probably side with me, but I'm not looking for man's eyes, I'm looking for God's eyes. And as we begin to talk about and delve into this idea and concept of faith and works, I want us to know that it is a constant battle, a constant struggle. And sometimes we soar with the eagles and we are doing exactly what the Lord has commissioned us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we are falling flat on our face. But in both circumstances, the mercy of God reigns. I just wanted to point that out this morning. Because a lot of times when preachers preach about this passage of faith versus works, We can feel a bit beat down because we do not perform the way that we should. None of us do. But oh, by the grace of God, we go. Oh, by the mercy poured out on the cross, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in a way, in a manner that is worthy of our Jesus. And so in a sense, this is my confession. That even though I strive to walk in a manner worthy of my Jesus, I also fall short. So let us read in James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Give them... Oh, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before you, as we hear the proclamation of this passage from James, let your word be true and all others be a liar. Let us cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. Let us earnestly desire the works of our lives to to reflect the transformation of our heart through faith. Salvation is by faith alone, but faith itself is never alone. Let us be willing vessels, ambassadors, bound by the obligation that we have to the gospel. For the gospel that has saved us is the gospel that commissions us to go. Burden our hearts today. Let us evaluate truthfully and honestly the lives that we live and let us reflect upon those things that we need to expel from our lives to better give you glory. Jesus Christ, be magnified in me today and in my family here at Paragon Church. Let us earnestly desire that Christ be lifted high. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So each day from the moment we wake up, we have choices to make. Some choices are simple, basic, trivial, while others require more thought and consideration. Some choices can change the course of your day, while others are nearly meaningless. But as we walk through the next 24 hours, there is one choice we'll make over and over again. Who will we serve? It's a choice of priorities, dedication, faithfulness. It's about choosing to live out the call God has placed on all of our lives. To take each step and live each moment for His glory. Today, there are never-ending opportunities for us to make an eternal difference in the world around us. We simply need to decide to do so. The choice is ours. It's a good question. Who will you serve? It's a question we have to ask, like that video said, over and over and over again. And as you ponder that question this morning, I'm going to send our kids on out to their classes and remind you that next week is a family service, so we will not be sending kids out. They're going to stay in here with us, so make sure you plan accordingly for that. If you do me a favor and open your Bibles, as Pastor Bruce has already read, From James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, we're going to be in that passage today as we continue to study the book of James. This is actually week 4 of James, as hard as that is to believe. It seems like we've just started it. But we did start a couple weeks ago with faith perseveres in James 1, 1 through 18, telling us how we persevere through the trials, through our faith in God, and how that perseverance grows us. Week two, we focused on James 1, 19 through 25, and it talks about the fact that faith obeys. It follows Christ. Our faith is in action, as we will see today. And then last week, we finished up James chapter 1 and into James chapter 2 by looking at faith loves. 
As we are here today, we are in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, and we're going to be looking today at one of the most debated passages in this book, and quite possibly one of the most debated passages in all of the New Testament. So we're going to have some fun with that as we look at faith acts, or faith works, or faith does. I appreciate Bruce sharing that story with me on Friday, and when he did, I said, hey, I really need you to share that on Sunday morning because it fits with what we talked about last week, and it will fit again with what we talk about today. Not to boast on anybody on our staff or anything like that, but this should be something that every Christian makes the decision to on who they're going to serve, themselves or God. So as we are looking at this passage today, I think we have to ask ourselves a question first. And that is, is why is there such a debate about the passage that Pastor Bruce read up front? Why this passage that is considered to be the, the main central thesis, the, the, the apex, the climax of the entire book, everything that we've talked about up to this point points towards it. As we talked about perseverance and obedience and love from the passage, it is pointing to today. And everything we talk about from, from here on out will point back at it. Why is there such a division about it? And I think the best way to do is that before we tackle the book of James, you may or may not remember because you've slept since then, we were in the book of Ephesians. One was called Made Worthy, and the other one was called Walk Worthy. You may still have the sticker on your, um, on your water bottles or something like that, but right there in the middle of us talking about Made Worthy and Walk Worthy was our Easter Sunday. And that Easter Sunday was a Sunday we coined by grace. Because we looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you grew up in the church, that's probably a verse that you had to memorize to get Awana bucks or something of that nature. For by grace I've been saved through faith. It's not of myself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I use the word lest because I memorized it in the New King James back then. Now, as I think about that, I look at that verse and I say, what Pastor Bruce just read on the surface, when we take a first glance at it, seems to stand in direct contradiction to what Paul said. And that is where the divide comes in. As you begin to look at it, you see that Paul, from the grand scheme of things, if we look at it quickly and don't go into depth, Paul is saying that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is true. But it also sounds like James is saying there's this faith plus works kind of deal going on which maybe is also true. And that is where the debate comes in. That is where this appearance of divisiveness comes in because at face value, that's the way we see these two things. Honestly, this debate birthed the Reformation. It's what separated uh, the Roman Catholic Church from the Protestant movement. It's a debate I still have today with different people that I, I consider friends that are of different religious backgrounds, from a Jehovah's Witness to a Seventh-day Adventist to even a, a Mormon. The, the works versus grace debate still rages on. Maybe you've had that before. I remember I worked at Red Robin. when I, One of my first jobs, I worked at Red Robin back in the kitchen. And when I worked there, uh, the, one of the dishwashers was a, a devout Mormon. And man, every time I went into work, it was this debate. Every time. It was about faith and grace versus works and faith. And as you look at it from that, that side, we have to go, hey, there's even more of a division within this passage than just that surface one. 
And that is this. For salvation, do you have to make Jesus the Lord of your life? Because if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, the word make makes it a work. And then you flip it on the other side. If you don't make Jesus the Lord of your life and you only accept him as your savior, is that considered easy believism? Which many people believe. And just doing Christianity your way where you get all the benefits of heaven and all the benefits of worldly living as well. What is it? Well, the root question I think that James is really getting to that we have to see and that we have to understand is this. What is real, genuine saving faith? What is real, genuine saving faith? It's a question that we have to answer. As a matter of fact, if you look at our... um, at our main screen or the, the banner is outside, and underneath will say, real life, real faith. What does that mean? It's not just a, a good question, by the way, because the correct answer to that question, what is a genuine, real, saving faith, is one that will affect your entire destiny. And not only your entire destiny, it'll affect the destiny of many that are around you because they're going to watch you and they're going to learn from you and they're going to emulate you. And when they do that, what are they watching and seeing and emulating? What are your family seeing? What are your friends seeing? And if you are living in such a way and going on acting as if your faith is genuine or as it says in verse 14, claiming that your faith is genuine, but it's not, it's going to end very badly for you. So we have to ask that question and we have to know the right answer. While Jesus was on earth, he said a lot of hard things. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But he said a lot of hard things and one of the hardest things that comes to my mind is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. One of the hardest ones for me to really wrap my mind around is this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you see that does there? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And what's Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, you evil doers. That, that is a hard passage, a hard thing to wrap my mind around because these people had all the right words. They did all the right things, but Jesus didn't know them. Why not? Because of why they did what they did. They didn't have a genuine saving faith, which brings us back around that important root question that James is trying to tackle here. What is genuine saving faith? And then maybe the flip side of that question is, is what is that fake false faith? Say that three times fast. Fake false faith that doesn't save. What is that? James poses that question in verse 14, really. Actually questions says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? He's basically saying this, what good is it to have a driver's license if you don't ever get in the car? What good is it to have scuba gear if you never get into water? What good is it to claim you are a follower of Christ but you don't ever follow? If you don't obey his commands? We kind of look at that and we say, well, here's this debate though. Because James, what, what about the grace thing? I'd rather lean on the grace thing, not on this works thing. So James is beginning to lay that out and still we kind of see it as maybe an opposition to what Paul says. 
So how do we approach this debatable topic properly? How do we approach this debatable text? Well, to do it, I think the first thing we need to understand is this. The Holy Spirit is not a politician. And I say that for this reason. He does not contradict himself. He does not go back on his word. He doesn't say one thing here and do something else here. He doesn't go different ways. If you believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true when it says all scripture is inspired by God and all means all, if all scripture is inspired by God, then we come to the conclusion that James and Paul were not at odds. As a matter of fact, they were working together. Even though on the surface the two passages don't jive, we can go a little bit further into it and see that they do. Our problem is, is a lot of times we like to take a passage and see it through our filter. We like to take a passage and say, well, this is the way that I would see it. This is the way that I would write it. This is if, if I were God, then I would. Let me just tell you, that's a bad place to be. Because it doesn't matter what we think. It matters what the Scripture says. So we have to look at it, first of all, that James is writing one way and Paul is writing another. As a matter of fact, that's the second thing we need to see. We need to see the context. The context in which they were writing it. Paul was actually writing his letters when he's talking about this in both Galatians and Ephesians. He was writing to a group of people who were trying to add outward things for salvation, namely circumcision taken from that Jewish tradition and saying, hey, we need to add these things if this is going to work this way. James, on the other hand, he is writing to address the problem of those who profess to claim to be followers of Christ, but yet their lives haven't changed. There's no difference in who they are before Christ to after. There's no difference. So he's, going, he's calling that out. So he says, first, we have to understand the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. The second thing we have to understand is that the context of what they're writing, they're writing to two different groups. The third thing is we have to remove our filters, like I've already said, to see how these passages fit together. Because when we don't like a certain passage, when we hit a certain passage that we struggle to understand, a lot of times we just push it off to the side instead of trying to figure out what it is that God's trying to say. Sometimes we also take a passage and we hold that passage and leave all the other ones that talk about the same subject out. There's a thing in the biblical college, the seminary world called systematic theology. And systematic theology is a big, huge, thick book by Wayne Gruden that you get when you first start in school and they're like, read all this. And you're like, that's not going to happen. But in it, what it does is it takes the topics and it looks on a grand scheme of the entire scripture on what it says about that topic. So we get the whole picture. We have to see the whole picture instead of just make an assumption on what we think one verse might say about a topic. I guess the best way to illustrate that is this. Uh, maybe you've heard this old parable about the four blind men in the village in India that are arguing about an elephant. And they're all arguing about what they think an elephant actually is. And as they're arguing about that elephant, the people of the village get really tired of hearing the argument, and they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to introduce and let these guys experience what an elephant is. So they take the four guys to the elephant, and the first guy puts his hands on its side. And he rubs back and forth, and he says, oh, this thing is big and strong and smooth and wide. It's just like a wall. And the second guy is on the back side, and he grabs a hold of the tail. And he's like, this tail is long and skinny, and it, this, an elephant's like a rope. 
And the guy up in the front is holding a hold of the, of the tusk. Or, I'm sorry, the, 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 the trunk. And as he's holding the trunk, he's rubbing it going, no, this isn't skinny and long. This is thick and, and long and it is strong. It's like a, a big anaconda type snake. And the last guy, the last guy, as he's sitting there, he's holding on to the leg. And as he's holding on to the leg, he's like, no, this thing is firmly planted into the ground. And it is big and it is round. It's like a tree. And so the guy's, all kept saying to each other, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. Now, which one's wrong? None of them. And yet, all of them. Because they're only seeing the certain attributes of the elephant and not seeing the whole picture. We do that with God, and we also do that with topics in the Bible. The best advice I can give you is stop. Stop only taking the attributes and see the whole picture. See the whole picture of who God is because the Bible reveals so much of it. See what his word says about these uh, different things like faith and works and grace. We need to approach God and we need to approach his word with teachable hearts that seek truth instead of trying to tell it what to say. Seek that truth and then apply it to our lives. So with all that in mind, really there's four things that we need to grasp from James's entire letter as well as this passage, as well as really the entire word, that systematic theology on what James is trying to say in this passage. And I will tell you this, the first thing we need to understand are these words. And this, if you don't get anything else I say today, this is the most important. It is by grace we are saved alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what we need to have. That is what we need to hold on to. And let me tell you this, because there is a debate that is out there. At no point in time does James challenge this truth. What James is doing is he's dealing with that root question again. What is genuine saving faith? That last question of verse 14, because he asked two, he said, can such a faith, can that faith that is claimed without anything to show for it, save a person? That is the question that he's getting to. And, and, and really, when we look at it, look back at the rest of the letter, what he said. We talked about verse 17 of chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. And he says these words in there. He says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. To me, salvation is the best perfect gift that I can receive. So I'm pretty sure that James would include that in that every, when he says every perfect and good gift comes from above. So salvation comes from God. The second thing we see is in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he says, by his, and his being God, by his own choice, so God chose, he, God, gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Saying, hey guys, we don't earn salvation. It's by God's choice that he, he gives it to us. We get new birth by the word of truth and by the will of God. You know what that's called? It's called grace. Because we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God gave it through his grace. And then to start chapter 2, James says, hold on to the faith you have in Jesus. You know what I see in those three verses? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He didn't challenge it. He's not going against it. We have to see that. We also can't forget that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that we talked about on that Easter, that by grace we have been saved through faith. Paul is saying the same thing, so they're in harmony there. But you know what else Paul says? There's a verse that we didn't have to memorize in Awana, and that was verse 10. 
that we are God's workmanship that have been created to do what? Good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So he's actually bringing it right together with James. Again, if we take one part of a passage and another part of a passage, we can find a way for it to make them conflict. But these don't. They actually work together. Both Paul and James say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it will result in us doing good works for the glory of God. Real faith acts. That's what he's saying. Second thing is, what he's also telling us is there is such a thing as a fake, false faith that does not save. John MacArthur's commentary that I was reading this week on James, he quotes an old British theologian by the name of Charles Cranfeld. And he said this about the passage. The burden of this section is not, as often supposed, that we are saved through faith plus works, but that we are saved through genuine as opposed to counterfeit faith. See, there's a counterfeit faith out there and we need to be aware of it, James says. Be aware that you're not just following blindly into something that, that isn't, isn't true. We need to remember that Satan is the master deceiver. Since salvation is through faith and not, and not works, it's not surprising to us that, that he's going to work overtime to deceive people to think that it's about works. He's going to deceive them to think that, that saving faith is if you just do enough things, apart from Christ even, if you just do enough things, then you can get into heaven. I'm not sure how often you've ever shared the gospel. But if you've just done it a couple of times, even if you've just done it one time, and you say, hey, why do you think you're going to get into heaven? For the outside of the church, non-believer, that even cares about heaven in the first place, you know what answer they're going to give you? I'm a good person. According to who? Whose scale are you working on to be considered a good person? person some people in the church might say well i I raised my hand i went down that aisle when i was called and well i i i took that step of faith okay what's james say prove it that's what he's saying that's, that's where we're at here. And there's this word in there that we keep seeing in verse 14 that I've emphasized is claims. A person claims he has faith, but talk is cheap. James says, let's test it. And how's he test it? He gives an illustration in verses 15 through 17. Let's look at that. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And then if you jump down to verse 20, which we're actually going to talk about next week, he says that faith is useless. It's worthless. This claimed faith is fake. It's a counterfeit. It's also false. James is laying it out there, and you might think, well, does Paul say that? As a matter of fact, he does. If you go, want to flip over in your Bibles, or you can just look up on the screen here, 1 Corinthians, actually, I don't think I put it on the screen. I apologize. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. It talks about this false faith. And Paul says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Unless it's false. He also talks about a workless false faith in Titus 1, 16. He says this, They claim to know God but they deny him by their works 
They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They deny him by his works. So what is going on here? A profession of faith that is false, it does not save. If it hasn't changed your life. As a matter of fact, that's the next thing we see in this passage. The third thing we need to grasp, fake faith that doesn't save is one that claims faith with no change in your life. No life change, no good works, no acts, no deeds flowing from that life change, nothing glorifying God in that way. Genuine faith will result in good works. Let me say it again. Genuine faith will result in a life of good works. And why do I say that? Because when God gives us birth through salvation, through the word of truth that we've already talked about, he gives us a new heart. As a matter of fact, it's prophesied back in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 prophesied these words. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. And you know what it says next? And cause you to follow my statutes. This new heart is going to lead to outward action. It's going to cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You know when that promise came to fruition? That prophecy came to fruition? The work of Jesus on the cross. When the new covenant was instituted. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. That new heart is come, and it is going to challenge us and grow us to do things on the outside. Genuine faith comes from a new heart because of a new birth. We are changed by God from within, and as that happens within, you're going to see it on the outside. Our lifestyles will change. Our actions will change. You want more bold statements? Listen to John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we are what? Lying and are not practicing the truth. 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know Him, yet does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. 1 John 2, 5 and 6, just two verses later. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. You want to know you're in him? The one who says he remains in him should do what? Walk just as Jesus walked. Those are pretty bold statements. They go right hand in hand with what Paul says and with what James says. It seals it all together. The point is here. The point is clear and it's throughout all of scripture. Genuine saving faith results in a changed life of good works. Real faith acts. Then we get to verse 18. Verse 18 is a great one because James starts having a hypothetical conversation. Anybody in here ever had one of those hypothetical conversations with somebody before you got into an argument? So you've already won the argument before you even meet with them? Come on, we all do it. We all have that where we're like, oh yeah, we're just talking to the car, driving as we're going along the road. We do it. And James does it right here and he writes it out for us. He writes it out for us and what he's basically saying is this, you know, you can start questioning me on faith without works, even works without faith. But let me respond to you, he says. James says, it's impossible to verify faith apart from works. Since faith is hidden attitude within the heart, the only way I can see it is by what you do. I had a friend that said, hey, you, Matthew 7 says, don't judge. You're right. Well, you can be a fruit inspector. If you don't see any fruit, you're not judging. You're just calling it out. If that tree is bare then it maybe it's not the tree you think it is. Basically, James is saying you can't separate true faith from God-glorifying actions. You might 
claim to have faith, but as one of the Sellers family dance party favorites that we do on a regular basis, so much so we, we turn our living room into a little dance thing. I'm, I'm looking for a smoke machine. Christy says no, but we already have a laser light one. It's got lasers shooting all over the place. But we turn on YouTube Christy music, and one of the ones we do is by Crowder. And the song is called Prove It. Prove it. And as it says in there, it says, if you're free, if you've been let go of the chains of sin, prove it. If you're not, lose the chains on your soul. Give your whole life and whole heart to Christ. That's what the lyrics say. If you're free, prove it. Are we free? And if so, are we showing it in our lives? The final point we need to see to understand really this passage and what James is saying, that fake faith that does not save, it may be doctrinally correct, but it never changed the heart. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. When you see that, James is talking to a Jewish audience, and that's taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, believing that God is one was the daily declaration of the Shema in the Jewish faith. He says, you believe that. You say that out loud. You say it every day. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You make that daily de- declaration. You believe that God the, is the Father. You believe in God the Son. You believe in God the Holy Spirit. You are doctrinally sound in that area. Wow, good for you. But here's the kicker. The demons believe it too. They already do that. And guess what? Even more so, they're not just doctrinally sound. They have an emotional response. They get the feels. They get all like shuddery. It's like Lion King with Mufasa. I'll say it again. You guys know it? You know what I'm talking about? And and this is what James is saying. Yeah, you can have an emotional experience. How many people go into a church and because of the lighting and the smoke and the lasers and all the things, have an emotional experience but walk out afterwards and go, okay, well now my life is just... Did it change? Or was it just... Because that's where it stops. Is that emotional experience for the demons? He says, you know what? If there's no no repentance, if there's no change in the mind where we turn from a rebellion and we submit to God and the Lordship of Christ, it's not there. If there's no change of heart where we turn from our hatred of God to loving Him, it's not there. If there's no change of behavior where we turn from disobedience to obedience, it's not there. If there is no change, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. Faith does not result, or sorry, faith that does not result in a changed life doesn't change us. It's not real. If it doesn't result in a changed life from self-centered rebellion to God-centered obedience, you better check it out. Because what he's saying here, it's no better than demonic faith. I like to say that I came up with that, but James says it. It's, It's demonic faith. It's no better than that. Now let me tell you this. James is not slamming sound doctrine here. Again, Systematic theology would show us that sound doctrine is a must to stand against false teachers because there are plenty of them out there and there's still plenty of them today. Saving faith in Jesus Christ must be built on the Jesus Christ as he is revealed in scriptures, not made up in our hearts, not made up in our minds. To believe in a Jesus that you've made up based on your feelings and bits and pieces of scripture that you pulled together, you know what they call that? Idol worship. Because you're worshiping a better version of yourself. That's all that God is. That's all that Jesus is if he's not the Jesus of Scripture. 
We must trust in the one and only Son of God who lived the perfect life and died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead. We must look to him and give our lives to him for salvation. Because if you're not, if you put your faith in anything else, including your own works, it's going to end very badly for you. You don't understand, I'm a good person. I do good things. Can I just tell you, I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how good society thinks you are. Without turning to Jesus and giving your life to him and repenting of your sins, there is no salvation. You know why I can say that confidently? Because that's what the scripture says. And we have to hold on to that. Again, James is not slamming sound doctrine. He's just saying that works alone won't save you. He's saying that intellectual knowledge alone won't save you. Knowing about Jesus isn't going to save you. It's knowing him, not knowing about him. Because you're in a personal relationship, that's what will save you. And as we wrap up, you might be thinking this question. In genuine saving faith, if it is genuine saving faith is proved by good works, then how many good works does it take to prove it? Because that's how we do it, right? How far can I go? What's the envelope? What's, what's the minimum amount I can do to qualify? We have those thoughts go through our head. Is one deed good enough? Does it take a hundred? Does it take a thousand? There's a denomination out there that would, that would clearly argue saying, if it takes one, then it's not faith alone. It's faith plus works. But to argue that way, I think, is truly to miss James's point because he's not saying we have to add works to our faith to make it genuine. He is saying that genuine faith, by its very nature, accompanies new birth. When God changes a person's heart, you will see it on the outside. You will see life change. When he has raised that dead sinner to a new life, he gives them a saving faith, and it will result in a new direction in their life. Like any other trip you take in your life. If you wanted to drive up to Denver, how are you going to get there? You're going to drive north on I-25 until you get to Santa Fe, and then you're going to go wanky, and then you're going to go back north again. But if I got on I-25 and headed south, I can say I'm going to Denver. I can claim I'm going to Denver, but I'm not. Because my direction, not my intention, determines my destination. What is the direction of your life? What is the final destination of your life? Those are very important questions. Is your faith genuine? You know, Paul says, examine yourself in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. James gives us some things to examine, even in this passage. Based on the passage we just read, is your faith indifferent to those who are in need? Are you involved in their lives? Is your faith independent of actual works or is it in partnership with those works to glorify God? Is your faith invisible to others or is it on full display for all to see in every aspect of your life to see that God has changed you? Is your faith just intellectual or is it move from your head to your heart and then flow from your heart to your hands and your feet? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. I'm going to finish with two verses that was found in the message commentary, or some people call it the message translation by Eugene Peterson, on our very passage today. Verses 17 and then verse 20 that we'll talk about next week. But it says, Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hand? 
That is a powerful, stinging statement. If we cut off one from the other, we have a dead faith. Can I just challenge you? Let's let our faith be alive and vibrant and on all full display so God gets the glory and people come to know him and his kingdom grows. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for these challenging words today. Ones that, ones that as I studied all week, I knew it would just be a challenge to my own heart. Hearing Bruce's story up front, God, we first of all pray for Austin and the scripture that was laid out to him and the, and the spiritual food that was given to him. That God, he comes to a saving knowledge. And not just a saving knowledge, but somebody invests and disciples him so he can grow and we can see fruit take place. But God, I pray that for every person in this room. The person that knows their destination, that God, they continue to grow in you and they continue to live their lives for you. And the person maybe in here that's going, oh, wow, am I in the fake faith department? Do I really know Jesus? And does Jesus really know me? God, we can fall into our own religious desires and own religious thinking, thinking that somehow we can earn heaven by what we think is right. But please, God, make it very evident to us, even today, that genuine saving faith comes through your son, Jesus Christ, who will change our hearts and then change our direction. God, that's our prayer today. We pray it all in your name. Amen. I'm going to jump down here in the front, and I I would love to pray with you. I know that I just threw a ton of of stuff. Some of you probably are like, I didn't even get it all. It's online. Check it out again. Examine yourself. Where is your faith? Have you slid away a little bit? Have you made some decisions that have kind of put a wall up between you and God? Have you kind of relied on maybe just one aspect of God, but forget there's many others?